Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. How are you, Steve? Hello, Russell. Very well, thank you. We've had a, a good week. We're now at week four of six, so if anyone's feeling the same as me, we're on the countdown to half term, but doing well, thanks. Um, how are you doing, more importantly? I'm all right. I, um, I dislocated my shoulder a couple of weeks ago, so for, the, so for that reason, I'm wearing old man pyjamas. <laughs> Which I've just told Emma Turner before we started the podcast and she's lost the plot. <laughs> so I'm wearing old man pyjamas because they, they go on easily when you've got a dodgy shoulder. Oh. Is that too much information, Steve? <laughs> yep. Um, images in my mind are not great right now. Thank you. <laughs> but despite, despite being very grumpy about dislocating my shoulder and being in lots of pain over the last couple of weeks, there has been something cheering me up, Steve. Do you want to know what it is? I can't wait to hear what it is. Thank you. Well, Steve, the thing that's cheered me up is tonight on this podcast, we are joined by someone and they are someone awesome. They're someone with over 20 years of teaching experience, someone who's been a leader and they've been an author of a really fantastic book called Be More Toddler and it's Emma Turner. Emma, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. I'm not in old man pyjamas. <laughs> so just to clarify, it is only me, Russell, in old man pyjamas. <laughs> <laughs> Emma Turner looks very normal to me. <laughs> and I'm still in full work attire, thank you very much. Yeah, there you go. So Emma, it's really good to have you on. Thank you for joining thank us. You. Thank you. It's lovely so, to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so Emma, could you start by giving us a little bit of background for our listeners, a little bit about you and your career? Well, I qualified in 1998, which sounds about a million years ago now. So I've been teaching for quite a long time. I work, trained in Liverpool, but I've worked predominantly in Leicestershire in a range of primary schools. I've been um, a national strategy consultant for the old numeracy strategy. Mm-hmm. I've been a deputy head, assistant head, and then was one of the first all-female co-headships back in 2009, which ran for eight years. And now I work for um, quite a big multi-academy trust, part-time still, in a leadership role, doing their um, CPD and research all across the trust for everybody from NQTs up to our leadership roles. Awesome. That was very concise. (laughs) So Russell, I I know exactly what part would have jumped out at you. Go on. And it could be something to do with their... numeracy in there yeah so uh, emma maths has always been my thing that's kind of been my nerdy when steve and i worked together i was the math subject leader at the school and something i'm passionate about is that's was that kind of something you always aimed to get into the maths it was no well i'm a science grad but i Mm. i was a strategy baby Mm. as in within the sort of first year of my teaching the national numeracy strategy came in and so i was kind of born into it being Mm. right at the beginning of my career whereas other people were kind of still trying to fit it in with what they'd already been doing or adapt what their existing practice and I had like no existing practice because I was a brand new teacher so I kind of grew up with it so it was fresh it was new and I was a real advocate of it back then so I became a lead teacher for the local authority for maths at the time in Leicestershire so doing demonstration lessons supporting colleagues in other schools and then I saw a job advertised to be um, Leicestershire maths consultant for the local authority so I went for that job and I worked in the Leicestershire maths team for a couple of years doing that and then went back in school so yeah 
I, I, I am a proper maths geek, yeah. Yeah, well, me too. Maybe yeah. I should leave you and Russell to do it. <laughs> do you know what? Yeah, it's funny because I was a, I, a sort of English grad. That was my thing. And I, I had a running joke with my first um, sort of placement teacher that I was with on training about what a shocking maths teacher I was and how much I hated it. And there's something sometimes when it's not your number one thing, you kind of get into it and you figure out perhaps how children might enjoy the subject more, how you would have liked to have been taught, and it became my strength. It's bizarre, that, isn't it? It is, because it is, I'm, I'm not naturally particularly brilliant at maths. It's, it's not the subject I would put at the top of my list of, yes, I'm definitely a mathematician. And actually, when the strategy came out, I genuinely thought, I wish I'd been taught like this, because I understood it then. It was almost yeah. like I, it all became, the fog lifted, it all became clear, and then I became really, really passionate about making sure nobody ever left school feeling like they'd got that slightly foggy grasp of maths. Yeah. And I, I think I ended up being a better maths teacher than I was in my subject that I found naturally, you know, easier. Okay, I'd been taught better yeah. myself. So I can really, really relate to that. So the, you've got to the point, Emma, you've, you've written this lovely new book, um, Be More Toddler. And it's an interesting premise, isn't it? It's, it's a unique angle mm -hmm. on leadership. Tell us a bit more about where that came from. It came from the fact that I was, as I said, in this co-headship with my co-head colleague, Claire. And during the eight years that we did the co-headship, I think there must have been a magic chair in our office because we had five babies between us. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like a revolving maternity door, basically. But whilst I, was off, um, whilst I was off on maternity, it, was, it became really clear that not only there was the co-headship, and kind of novel setup but then to have maternity breaks in leadership was also really novel um, and then I had a chance meeting with an, a former colleague who's a lovely guy absolutely brilliant but kept talking about me and my achievements in the kind of the not, not deliberately either he would never have done that mm. but kind of in the past tense as in well this is you now your mum now and mm. I, I suddenly thought, I don't want to be a statistic. And then I started looking at my kids and started thinking, do you know what? Wouldn't it be great as a leader if you could be as effective as a toddler in changing an organization's dynamics and behavior? And, and then I started to look at what they're actually doing and thinking, actually, what they're doing is what great leaders do anyway. But just to point out, great leaders do not have tantrums. And <laughs> 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 <I'm> have <throwing laughs> <laughs> unsavory toilet habits. <laughs> <laughs> Russell, but, uh, the, the positive aspects of toddler behaviour were what actually most great leaders do anyway, and, and it was just having a completely different angle, a completely different look at leadership. Because nothing out there, when I was trying to find stuff to read about leadership, nothing mentioned being part time, nothing mentioned to having a family, nothing mentioned anything other than being a hundred percent there on, you know, completely focused. And I just wanted something that to write something to say it doesn't have to be this way you know Claire and I've done this for a while now successfully and you don't have to have this one generic central narrative you can do things a little bit differently. No, absolutely um, Emma I know that we've both really enjoyed your book and uh, we thought it'd be great if we could share some of your favorite bits from it and perhaps you can elaborate them for our listeners because there's plenty that we've enjoyed in it it could be worth sharing with everyone else is that all right yeah no problem um now our facebook group uh, a couple of weeks ago love island started and i i was a guilty <laughs> party <laughs> yeah you know where i'm going <laughs> yeah i put up on uh, our group that yes i was watching love island and i got destroyed for it rightly so um <laughs> it leads me to the um chapter where you mentioned the 101st ruffalo story 
But what I really liked about it was how you resonated that and related it to leadership. Could you tell everyone about that, please? I thought you were going to talk about the, the, the Love Island quote that's in there. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, there is I, that. <laughs> when I tried to convince 40 NQTs Love Island that it went horrendously badly. <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> no, the, um, the Gruffalo thing was the fact that as leaders, if you're a leader of learning, then actually what you should be doing is learning constantly, deliberately, and prioritising your learning time for your own personal professional development but what can get lost in the kind of the busyness of the day is that gets eaten into and it drops off the radar and it drops down the kind of the list of important things to do whereas a toddler at the end of every single day takes that time to read and to to learn and to grow and to develop and they don't worry about what they've got left to do from the day or what might be coming up tomorrow it's that time to be completely immersed in reading and language and learning and it's a beautiful part of a toddler's day and it's one that as adults we completely deny ourselves because we're so busy with stuff that we don't actually take the time to develop and the minute you stop learning is the minute you should stop leading basically mm. because mm. you can't lead if you if you just stood still and not developing yourself you've mm. got to keep learning you've got to prioritize that learning whatever format that that may be maybe reading or online resources or um just it doesn't have to be learning about education necessarily just reading widely finding out about the world finding out about different organizations different structures different ways people live and and work and it's it's so sad that the busier we get the less time we have for learning yet we walk into a school and we go right everybody learning is the thing that we all need to be doing yeah. well i'm not doing any yeah. <laughs> don't look at me it's so no, true. Go on, Steve. Yeah, sorry, Russell. Yeah, I was just thinking, um, it kind of comes to that false ideology that the leaders know it all and they don't go beyond that to extend themselves in their learning. And I, I think when I talk to Russell, we're really keen to both be back in the classroom here and there, like whether it's part-time teaching or just dipping in. And it comes along with that idea that when you go home as well, it's like picking up articles, blogs, etc., because it can all develop your practice. And I think that's something that people forget happens naturally with some leaders but not all of them yeah and it, the the idea that a leader can't be you know fallible is is com- a complete falsehood you know mm. I, I say in the book about if you want to take people with you be imperfect if you want to people to just follow you blindly and, and with fear just be you know be perfect because the minute that you start presenting yourself as completely perfect people are you know fearful of you and they don't see you as anybody that might um, relate to the the faults and the foibles and the difficulties that they might be experiencing. So, by all means, be informed, be well read, but be fallible as well, and be honest about about your own capabilities. And, and to, mm. it's all right to say, I don't know this, but I will find out. <laughs> yes, uh, I do that often. <laughs> yeah, leave it with me. <laughs> yeah. Emma, that couldn't have been a more perfect lead-in for my next bit because I wanted to pick up the red sky at night, angel delight bit. <laughs> Can you tell people what that's about? Something your daughter used to say. My daughter was so proud of herself because we were driving home from my parents one day and this beautiful sunset and she leant forward in the car seat. She said, mummy, mummy, look, look, red sky at night. Angel delight. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite what we say, it's shepherds, but let's just go with it. Um, And it was, it was that moment where she kind of sat back and went, oh, and that sort of laughed at herself. And I thought, do you know what? In leadership, 
if we made a crashing mistake in front of people, we'd overthink it and go over and over in our heads and we'd lie awake, catastrophizing, you know, about, about it all and thinking, oh, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have this. Whereas toddlers, the reason one they're absolute learning machines is because they don't mind making mistakes. They don't mind looking a bit like they don't know something. And they just basically take it on their chin and go, oh, okay then, let's move on. Whereas leaders, we think, well, some people think that if you make a mistake, that's the end, you know, mm-hmm. it's that's the end of everything. But actually, um, learning constantly from the things that you don't know or find difficult is so important. And especially if it's your first leadership role, accepting that that first year, every day is your first day. Because mm. you've never done that day at that point in yeah. the year. So you don't know the rhythm and the ebb and flow of the day. So kind of saying to yourself, this year, every day, I'm going to make a new mistake. Yeah. <laughs> but I won't make it next year. That's a New Year's resolution I could have kept to, to be honest. Growth mindset in its finest. Yeah. In that, um, in that section, Emma, you, you don't just talk about the leader's mistakes. You talk about your colleagues' mistakes, don't you? And you talk about, there's a lovely bit. You worded it beautifully. It was something along the lines of, in your view, the vast majority of teachers come to work wanting to do a good job. You're kind of exploring there how we as leaders respond when our, when our staff make mistakes. Can you say a bit more about that? I've yet to meet anybody in teaching who gets up in the morning and goes, do you know what? I want to go into school today. I really want to do an absolutely awful job. I want to be a rubbish teacher. I want to destroy the lessons. I want to ensure nobody learns anything. And I want everybody to be miserable. Um, and when we're developing staff, providing sort of professional development opportunities, some, some leaders are so obsessed with getting people to do things in a certain way to tick a certain box for certain accountability structures that they actually forget that they're dealing with a person mm. and that every single person that they're dealing with will have their own skill set and their own way of doing things, their own way of learning. And we have to accept that if we're going to develop staff and move people thinking forward, they're going to have to take risks and try new things. And when you take risks and try new things, things go wrong, but that's part of the learning process. Um, and it's about recognizing your staff as people who have got their own kind of development journeys rather than trying to force people down very narrow avenues to tick boxes and then when you're actually going on these adventures with people together and sort of trying out all these new things and and they're influenced by their reading from their gruffalo things (laughs) um that accepting that there will be mistakes along the way but it won't be because they've wanted to do a bad job it will just be that the process that they're going through or the things that they're trying need refining and reflecting on and developing mm. so it's about seeing every single person in your school as a learner who is developing and in the same way that you wouldn't chastise a toddler for making a mistake you don't mm. chastise your staff because most of the time it's not deliberate you know mm. people are developing learning moving their moving their um, practice forward so things aren't going to be perfect first time i love that and when if, if you're if you are chastised when you muck up you're not going to want to try anything else are you no. you're going to and, and and as a leader you're you're going to be put under more pressure because what people will revert to is asking you to check everything and that's yeah. exhausting as a leader isn't it when yeah. every little thing needs to be run by you and then yeah. and then leaders complain about that so it's yeah yeah really good point mm. and we do our staff to take risks as well so yeah. that follows on from that if you're naturally go chastise and yeah no one will want to take risks you want to create a culture where taking risks calculated risks and informed Mm. risks and change is encouraged because without change without risk without adventure you don't develop 
But if you are constantly hamstrung by some ridiculous tick list that you think somebody wants to see in your lesson, then you're never going to move anything forward and you're going to be in a culture of fear rather than a culture of development. Mm. And in the book, when I talk about the toddlers, the toddlers don't fear anything when they're learning. They're just, they are absolute learning machines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like, bring it on, I'll have a go. <laughs> That's beautifully articulated. Thank you. Um, I've got another question because I am new to being a daddy. Uh, I've got a five-month-old. Yeah, congratulations, me. Uh, it's a lack of sleep on my face. But um, you talk about... Nine years. Nine years on this face. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't complain, should I? <laughs> uh, I loved what you said about when you go home and hang up the leadership cloak um, and find that real balance between uh, working inside and outside the school. Um, why did you write about that? And what do you think the relevance is to ensure that we have that healthy life balance because I love when you said um, you can't <laughs> hug properly behind the laptop and that was really powerful to me because I constantly <laughs> sit on my laptop at home and probably think I'm not showing my family near enough attention that I should be. <laughs> um, I think it's, I mean, I, it came initially from the work of Steve Radcliffe. I don't know if you read him when he talks about his four energies. And it sounds a bit Glastonbury, it's not. He's a guy, 60-year-old guy from Wigan. He couldn't be less Glastonbury <laughs> if he tried. No offence to anybody in Wigan who goes to He will say, one of his jokes is he's got such a broad Wigan accent. Um, I'm just trying to think what a person from Wigan is called. <laughs> a Wigonian? A Wigonian. Um, anyway, and he talks about these four energies and he talks very much about the spirit energy, which is where the Glastonbury thing comes in. But actually he says it's, it's got to be restored. You can't be a leader who has not got the kind of that spirit energy going on. And one of the most restorative things to do is to be around the people that you love and who love you. And we are leaders, well, we're humans first, leaders second. And actually, you've got to bring yourself to the job. And so you can't bring a sort of shadowy husk of yourself who's just been working all weekend and not being around the people that give you the fuel and the energy and the encouragement and the commitment to do your week weekday work mm. um, and Stephen Tierney who tweets as leading learner yeah. wrote an amazing blog and in it he referenced something about coming towards the end of retirement not mm. coming towards retirement sorry and somebody's wife saying I wish I'd been your passion mm. so, oh. <laughs> I was just like oh my god mm. but then I thought about all the nights that you know the kids have been wanting to talk to me and I've, I've been busy or you know um I kept thinking, oh, I've got parents in, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to, I've got to get that done by tomorrow. And actually, I now, I realised partway through the co-headship, you can't work like that. You can't be on at work and on at home doing work. And I use a slide in sort of my training now that says, children are not a distraction from work. They are the most important work. Mm. And it's actually about mm. kind of flipping it and saying that your most important work, the reason that you live is for your family and your your friends and your home. The reason that you work is to give you, you know, professional autonomy and, and joy in, in, in the role. But actually, if push came to shove, you'd want to be at home. Mm. And and it's just a reminder that it's so important to when, to be present at home when you're there and not to have this kind of shadowy spectre of work eating into Home. And we do it right from NQT year or early career. You, you'll take a box of marking home for its kitchen mm-hmm. table holiday, where it just looks yep. at you and makes you feel guilty all night because you've not done it. Mm. Whereas if you just left it at school and then go back to it fresh, 
It's, it, and that's why I say about hanging up, hang up the leadership cloak when you come home as much as you can. Try not to do anything if you don't need to. I mean, yeah. fair enough if you're working flexibly and you block some time to do something. You think, right, that's the time I want to do because I want to leave school early and be with the children, then I'm going to do it at that time. But it's about having that clear delineation between this is my work time, this is my home time. If I'm not a decent person at home, I'm not going to be a decent person in my job. So it's about getting the balance right between the two. Mm. Um, Emma, you talked about the importance of physical health in the book. You um, talked about the destructive cycle of sleep deprivation and how that leads. To, uh, <laughs> I only uh, laugh because my children are part of that destruction. Yeah, <laughs> and I can relate to it. You talk about the destructive cycle of sleep deprivation and then how that leads to more caffeine and more sugar and more biscuits and I. <laughs> It just felt like you were talking to me personally. It's like you, <laughs> you'd, been, you'd been spying on me. So what do you see as the value of actually taking care of our physical health as well? Um, I talk in the book about toddlers prioritising the basics, sleep, food, play. That's all they want to do. They want to sleep, they want to eat, they want to play. But as adults, the more we go to, the older we get, basically, the less we prioritise those three basic things, you know, downtime and thinking time, eating well and getting enough rest. Mm. And, and I talk about the fact that there are pinch points in any job, in any academic year, in any organisation where there'll be like a week or two weeks where it's a bit blooming manic and you just, it's all hands on deck and all good habits fly out the window. But, and that's, I don't say it's fine, but it's, you can, it's understandable. Mm. What the problem is, is when that pace becomes the norm, mm. when, they, when you're constantly mm. running on empty, you're not sleeping because you're either anxious or you're deliberately going to bed late because you think you've got so much stuff to do. And then it's been proven time and time again that if you've not had enough sleep, you eat rubbish and you crave mm. rubbish. Yep. So you end up eating biscuits for breakfast and umpteen slices of cake at break time and you just survive on diet coke and coffee and mm. tea and sugar basically which mm. then makes you crash even more and then you can't sleep and it just becomes this absolutely destructive cycle that you get into and none of my children slept at all <laughs> not at all not any of them until they were well over two and a half and because i had them close together <laughs> It's like nearly nine years of not one single night of sleep. In fact, I remember going to a conference with my with my new job, and it was an overnight conference. I nearly hugged my CEO. I was so much. This is the best development ever. And went well. The conference. I know it's a good conference. I was like, no, I get to go to bed on my own. I was going to say, my heart is palpitating at a thought of no sleep for two and a half years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still alive. It doesn't kill you. It just gives you a few like... A fair point. Yeah. It was about prioritising as a teacher. And it makes me laugh as well that we, we talk about healthy eating and healthy lifestyles with the children. And then we're kind of basically mainlining tea and coffee and sugar mm. to get on with the job. And it's about stepping back. And there are some amazing people promoting sort of healthy lifestyles for teachers. I can think of Lisa Fathers for one i mean she's an amazing educator and she also teaches a spin class at the weekend <laughs> just to them. um but it's it's about making sure that we model good habits to our children to our families and we don't just become this kind of crazy caffeine sugar slave mm, couldn't agree more uh, emma this leads quite well actually uh, because what really grabbed me at the beginning of the book for anyone that hasn't already read it you talk about the triple buying philosophy um, and how parents <laughs> are driven with free drivers and how that relates to leadership now i was sitting there nodding 
constantly to this whole <laughs> ideology. Can you explain that for our listeners, please? Um, it was about the fact that these, these children come into your life and they completely turn it upside down. Mm-hmm. And everything that you've ever done, you change. You change the way your house is aligned. You change what you do in the evenings. Instead of going, should we go for a drink? Should we go to the gym? You know, it's like, <laughs> who's going to do, do bedtime and bath time? It's your turn. No, it's your turn. Yeah. Um, but actually, you can't fail to, to walk into a house and not know that there's a baby or a toddler there because it affects absolutely whole scale change. And it, as I said, this kind of triple buy-in, the first is, you have that moral duty for looking after your kid. You don't really want to be the one that's making the headlines for deciding to just leave them to fend for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you actually love what you do because despite kids being um, unbelievably hard work, you just, they are absolute joy. You know, they are absolute joy. And that's why people, as soon as they've had a baby, their Facebook is just spammed with picture after picture. Yep. Oh, yes. <laughs> And you look in your phone and you've got like 14 pictures of them holding a spoon. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Have you been going through my gallery on the phone? Yeah. <laughs> and then the last one is that everybody kind of understands what they're doing in terms of babies and toddlers. Like you don't give a newborn a shoe and try and get them to put it on themselves. You know, it's the wrong thing at the wrong time. Whereas a toddler, everybody knows what they want to do. You know, it's potty training, it's getting themselves dressed, it's learning to look after themselves. So it's those three things. It's moral duty love of what you do and a clear plan Mm. and all of those three things align with great leadership doing the right thing morally the right thing um making sure that everybody loves coming to work and it's a great place to work the children love coming the staff love working there and the last one is everybody understands what it is we're trying to do Mm. there is a plan and we all know what we're doing so that's kind of the triple buy-in for leadership which toddlers do naturally and we think, oh, there's nothing to learn from toddlers, nothing at all. And then you look at it and go, oh, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's loads, yeah. It's mm. <laughs> Definitely. And I think it's uh, looking at what's tangible and what is not. But you can, like you say, you can see it, you can feel it. And yeah. It, that's, yeah, I completely agree. So Emma, there's a bit of the book that really kind of gave me the boost, the goosebumps, the goosebumps in a really, <laughs> have you ever had the goosebumps? The goosebumps <laughs> in a really good way. I had my own toddler moment then, didn't I? Um, and that was, you kind of gave a real call to the reader to not be afraid to try new things for fear of failure. And you talk about if you're even sort of 80% sure you might be able to do something to just go for it. And I love yeah. that. That really gave me the tingle down the spine. What's that about? Where did that come from? It's because most people that I talk to who uh, want to go into a leadership role or want to take a next step or want to do something different, um, they see the advert and they think, oh, that looks exciting. And then they get the person spec or the, you know, the essential desirables criteria, whatever it is, and they look down it and they go, oh, I can't do that and I can't do that. But I can do that and I can't do that. And then even if they've got like 80% of the can-do stuff, they'll still go, oh, I still can't do that because I haven't got this, this, and this. And and unless it's a a real essential, like you need to have a degree or you need to have a a, a teaching qualification, person specs and job descriptions aren't necessarily a recipe that will fail if you have a few ingredients missing. You can still Mm. cook up a storm with what you've got. And it's it's every new step up for somebody you can't step up and be the finished article straight away. You will right. develop in that role and you will learn new skills and you will learn, you know, all the not associated knowledge with it. So if you're almost there, 
we should go for it and, and then sort of say to the people on the interview panel or the, the you know through the application process i'm really good at this and i'm really good at that and i want to learn this because unless you have the confidence to actually take a risk and go for something you're going to end up never going for anything i mean mm. claire and i when we went for the the co-headship thing nobody had ever really done that locally and or barely nationally i think there's only mm. a handful of things at the time but it was just like well if not us who's going to do it and if not now mm. when are we going to you know it was just one of those things where you just kind of have to go for it and there's far too many people who are so wracked with imposter syndrome now don't get me wrong imposter syndrome is my friend yeah. <laughs> Giving me a little kick up the backside and tap my yeah. shoulder, a little whisper in the ear, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> um, but it's about just saying, well, sod it. Let's just go for it, mm. see what happens. Because if you were the finished article in that job you wanted to go for, you'd probably be ready for the next one. Yeah. So actually, you need to, to think about what you can do and what you can bring and then how you can develop the other things that they want. Um, rather than thinking I've got to have a hundred percent of the things there to be able to do that job. So it's about taking a risk and toddlers always take risks. Most mm. of the time risks that involve ending up in potentially in the walking center. <laughs> 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 they are unafraid of risk. They, they, and they always embrace new challenges and they're constantly saying, I want to have a go. I want to do it. I want to do it. And mm. then we grow up and we go, oh, I'd really like to do it, but I don't think I'm good enough. Yeah, and we're just kind of wrapped with that self-doubt and imposter syndrome, which, as a toddler, we do better to be more like them and just shelve it and go. Do you know what? I'm gonna have a jolly good go at this. <laughs> I love that advice, goes. Emma. Yeah. I really, really like that advice. I, and to give a concrete example from from my role as someone that sometimes obviously recruits is I. My last was an assistant head and in a large three form entry school and. I was looking for a team team leader, sort of middle leadership role to help me run that upper phase, which was a very large phase of the school. And um, it was really interesting at first thinking, what do I want in, in this role? Who, What kind of person am I looking for? And it wasn't until I started showing people around and I showed people around that were middle leaders, that had been assistant heads even, that were, were experienced, seemed to have that spec sorted on paper. And then this one came along who said, I'll be really honest. I'm, I'm just, I'm a PSHE lead at the moment. That's, that's my level of responsibility. So but I just really feel like I want to give this a go. I really like the sound of the role. And there's something about her charisma, her people skills. And I could just see, I could just see in her that she was going to really grow into this role and, you know, didn't take much convincing for the head either because he could see it. And we took a punt on her and it was a fantastic, fantastic person to <laughs> employ. And, you know, she just grew so much into that role. And yeah, I think that's sound advice. And that kind of takes me on to my next thing, which is that you talk about the kind of perceived judgment out there for, for women in particular around their work and life commitments and feeling that pressure of potentially being mums and also um you know letting their careers carry on can you tell us a bit more about what those perceived judgments are do you think for a lot of women well pretty much early on after having my first baby i knew that everything i did i was going to be wrong <laughs> it didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter whether I chose to go back to work full time. That would have been wrong because I was leaving my baby in childcare. If I stayed at home, I was wasting my talent and expertise or I was living off my husband and <laughs> um, not contributing. And if I worked part time, I was juggling too much and taking too much time. So basically, the first thing I had to suck up was 
oh, do you know what? Everything I do is going to be wrong. Somebody somewhere is going to think I'm doing the wrong thing. What I've got mm. to do is the right thing for my family and our setup and our dynamic and our requirements and our children. And if I'm doing the right thing by them, then that's the right thing. Um, and what was very interesting is that obviously I was pregnant, had the baby, uh, I had lots of questions about when are you going to back to work? Are you going to go part time? Are you going to go full time? Nobody asked my husband that. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I didn't get asked that. I had, I had my, well, my wife had them, um, I believe, uh, but we had our kids very young. We were, tw- you know, 24, 26 when, when we had ours. And uh, yeah, I definitely didn't get asked, am I sure, you know, sure about getting back into it and taking that next promotion and so on. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah, and it's, mm. um, and it's changing. The dialogue is changing and there are some amazing, amazing organisations, Flex mm. Teacher Talent, Shared Headship Network, Maternity CPD, and then obviously the amazing work of Women Ed who are completely changing the narrative around women in leadership and women in the workplace and maternity and shared parental leave because shared parental leave is now happening more so mm. but historically there just hasn't been there haven't been enough models of shared parental leave and that's why you still get this kind of perceived judgment of whatever you do is wrong mm. and i speak to so many women uh, at events who are all constantly wrangling with am i doing the right thing and my answer is always if it's right for you and it feels right for you and your family and it fits in and your children are happy and you're happy and then that's the right thing there is no one solution because as every child is different as every family dynamic is different every solution to how you need to work is different Mm. and it's not about saying you should do this or you should do that it's about saying what opportunities have you got that would fit to make work effective and for you to be effective at work and also for home to be happy and supportive and effective there as well Mm. and so it's not about getting every mother back into work full time after she's had a baby neither is it saying that they must take some kind of enforced period of leave Mm. for a year or it's about every single individual having a choice and then being able to um, affect change at work and at home and accommodate those changes whilst kind of basically everybody being happy (laughs) absolutely steve you were saying to me earlier weren't you when we were chatting about this you were quite shocked about this the statistic yeah i can't believe it emma when i read that um of all the people to leave the profession 37 percent of women between the age of 30 and 40 and what's really tragic about that is if you think about age between 30 and 40 Mm. imagine how many years of teaching those people have got under their belt as well yeah because most people will have qualified in their early 20s, potentially stayed in the classroom till their 30s, mid 30s. So you've got people who've got sort of 10, 12, 15 years experience who are just gone then. Mm, yeah. And the, mm. lack of, the lack of flexibility and the lack of accommodation for change or part-time working or flexible working, or it, it just means that so many people feel they've got no other choice but to leave. Um, and that, that again is changing massively rapidly but still not enough um, and if, if it was any other demographic any other demographic would say 37% in one small demographic are leaving every year there'd be absolute uproar yeah. you know, people would be moving heaven and earth to keep that retain that talent 
in school. And there are so many creative ways that you can retain people and experience in the classroom. And I was at an event on Saturday for Sarah Mullins' book, What They Didn't Teach Me on PGCE. And one of the speakers said, we haven't got a recruitment crisis. We have got a retention crisis. Mm. And I thought that is exactly it. Because if all these people are leaving, then who mentors and trains the early career teachers? Who provides the expertise? Who provides the mastery of the craft? Who provides, you know, model practice for people to see and develop and it's just an absolute crying shame so the more ways we can look at retaining talent in school be it for short periods of um part-time working or flexible working or extended periods it's it's about making sure that through huge life transitions whether it be um parenthood whether it be caring for an elderly relative or a spouse or a period of ill healthy self there are so many ways to hold on to key people, but saying you've got to work full time and be shackled to a timetable for five days a week is not the most helpful way <laughs> that you know that you retain talent in school. <laughs> Emma, you've kind of touched on this already, but we had quite a few messages sent um, on our group privately, and it's from women who are saying that they're feeling trapped in their current context and they're weighing up the progression in their career whilst also wanting to be mums. Would what kind of uh, deliberate message would you give to them when you say trapped in their context are, are they already working part-time or full-time? <clears throat> some full-time full-time yeah there is a thing about if you've been given flexible working um some people can feel trapped because mm. they feel like i wouldn't get this same deal elsewhere which is the first point why why more places need to offer flexible working because there's nothing worse than somebody getting that flexible contract or flexible you know arrangement and then feeling they've got nowhere else to go because mm. that's the only place that them. so that the first one is about widening the scope of flexible working across all stages of education and uh, or, or career stages as well and the second one is um you there's so much guidance out there about going for promotion whilst on maternity there's a there's a huge chat on twitter this week from maternity cpd about how to apply for leadership posts whilst on um, parental leave and about how to structure it what questions to ask and I would say that actually leadership is massively flexible I'm, I'm going to get crucified for this it's easier than being a teacher <laughs> 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 by easier by easier I don't necessarily mean easier easier but it's there's so it's more elastic in that you mm. don't have to be stood in front of the kids at whatever time you start in the morning if you want to schedule a meeting to start at quarter past nine or half past nine you can mm. um, and a lot of the work that you do as a leader you don't have to necessarily do on site mm. so yes you have to have leadership presence but the stuff you can do that doesn't need to be you know in front of the kids so there is huge flexibility which can make things seem easier because you've not got to be on your feet in front of the kids all day and you've got opportunities to work slightly differently. So leadership is massively flexible. So I would say don't be afraid of leadership being more work. It's, my God, the accountability. Yes, that can be scary. But actually in terms of the day-to-day -day business of it, 
you can have a wee when you want. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that for me, Emma, was literally the best bit about stepping out of the classroom. It was like, it was getting to go to the toilet. Obviously, as a man, I've always been, felt a bit privileged in primary schools because there's normally only one or two of us. So, But being able to go to the loos and know I've got complete oh, peace for this five minutes. Yeah, I, and, and you don't have to have your tea in a thermal mug. <laughs> <laughs> That is so true. Who wouldn't go into leadership now? <laughs> That's really sold. selling this, aren't I? We've sold it to people. Tea. Tea yeah. <laughs> so what, Emma, what are the advantages of something like a co-headship or, you know, a shared oh. assistant hair post or a shared deputy post? What, why can that work so well? I can't believe people want to, wouldn't want to do a co-headship. That, mm. I, I just can't understand why you wouldn't want to do it. Because you if you think about the combined number of years experience that you would get from two people in one role, you've potentially got what 40 years worth of experience rather than 20 or 20 rather than 10. And mm. um, you've got complementary skills as well. Claire and I were very, um, very common about two sides of the same coin, very different areas of expertise, but massively aligned in terms of leadership, vision and strategy. You've also got the opportunity to be in two places at once. Yeah. If you need to be, yeah. it's brilliant. Um, and then you've got somebody to actually um, coach you through the days as well, because leadership's incredibly lonely. And, and, and the most vulnerable person in a school in terms of well-being is the head teacher because yeah. they are classed as a lone worker because there's mm. nobody on the same level as them. Mm. They're either managing the people who are, are kind of, on, I don't want to say lower grade, but you know what I mean, who aren't yeah. on that level with them or they're being held to account by people by the governors so there's nobody mm. unless they build their own strategic network of other head teachers there's nobody there um to share it with basically which is why it ends up drifting home and leeching into your home life but the co-headship bit was brilliant because you automatically got each other to bounce the ideas up when one of you's up the other one's down and vice versa and we flexed the model of co-headship i mean we started off we were both still classroom teaching and doing the co-headship, so we were both working full-time to start with. And then we both went off on maternity. We ended up clashing our maternities, which was <laughs> twice, which was not ideal. But, um, but it meant that we were at similar life stages as well. So we understood where each other was coming from. And they, we, kind of was, we were learning on the job together, as, which was brilliant, finding out how to do it. But then it, it meant that when one of us was off, there was somebody else there to, not to deputise, but who was the other half of you. Yeah. There were so many massive benefits to it. And, and when one of us had come up with an idea, the other one would be like, yes, that's brilliant. Or that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and you have that kind of inbuilt thermometer of, is this good or is it just a really stupid idea? Yeah. Um, and so it was great. And I don't know how I feel about being a head teacher on my own now because oh, really? mm. I've, I've seen the benefits, massive benefits of mm. co-headship and co-leadership because people say, oh, how can you possibly lead if there's two of you? And I want to go, you know, quite a lot of families have two parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So true. Yeah. You, know, mm. you don't squabble about who's going to be the real leader. And the reason people view it as so weird 
um, not weird, of different, shall I say, is because we haven't got any adults who've been in school yet with a co-headship model necessarily. Mm. That the, the historical narrative that we've all experienced is one head teacher, one school. Mm. Um, and the first cohort of children that would have been in our school when we did the co-headship would be just coming up for 20 now. So they would be our kind of first adults who've been from our demographic in a, in a co-headship model. And, but until there's more co-leadership roles coming through, it's not going to be in people's psyche as anything other than, oh, that's a bit unusual, isn't it? Although there's mm. great work going on out there to promote co-leadership and flexible working and leadership. I think it's, it's going to be a slow burner in terms of the general population, but it is gathering pace within the system massively, so, which is so how- amazing. How did it practically happen for you, Emma? I mean, some people will be sat there thinking, yeah, this could work. Like, I like this idea, but how the hell do I make this happen? Mm. Oh, From interview onwards, yeah. It was a bit of a hot potato for us because our, our head left mid-year. He left in January. Oh. And we were both deputies at the time. And I was literally a couple of weeks away from starting a round of IVF treatment. And my co-head colleague then had been deputy for a month or two and it was when you still needed mpqh to do headship um, and i'd got my mpqh and claire hadn't started hers yet so she potentially could have done it but hadn't got the qualification yet and i had got the qualification but was hoping i wasn't actually going to be there so we were kind of like oh what do we do and then we found this dfe um uh, article that was about shared headship and we presented it to the governors and went we could do it together <laughs> yeah. and uh, they were like oh well yes this is yes we could we could and we kind of did it as an interim thing to start with and weirdly we were then interviewing for head teachers to come in and we were <laughs> formulating all the adverts and, doing, and after about a year we thought hang on a minute why are we why are we interviewing all of these people we've done this for a year now we mm. can do it you know, so we went to the governors and we said, um, rather than go for another round of interviews for head teachers, we've kind of thought that we might kind of want to do this. <laughs> Excuse the vernacular, turn the radio off if you've children listening. <laughs> but the governors, one of the governors turned around and went, about bloody time. <laughs> we were like, oh. I love that. Yeah, back in we thought you were never going to say that, and so yeah, we made the, we made it a substantive co-headship mm. from then on, and uh, it was just brilliant because we had to set up everything from payment to contracts and all sorts of things because nobody had got any of those systems in there. But I would definitely say to people, don't be afraid of asking to set up co-headship, and if you get in touch with Flex Teacher Talent, they've got so much so many resources about, also not shared headship network, shared headship network, I've got loads and loads of resources about how to find your co-head partner, how to approach a school about setting up a co-headship. They've got advice and packs for governors and schools to actually think about whether co-headship would be a right fit for them. Um, Because it is great, but like a life partner, you have to get the right person. (laughs) Steve, are you thinking what I'm thinking, buddy? <laughs> I'm coming to Devon, Russell. <laughs> it's, it's such a close and intense working relationship. Yeah. You really have got to be on the same page, mm. um, both professionally and kind of personally, really, because you can't share an office with somebody you can't stand. Um, and you've also got to be there and to, pre- to present a united front. So you've got to agree on the big things as well as the little things. So 
yeah I, find your partner is the first one and the other thing is don't be afraid to offer to schools uh, a percentage of your time so for example if you see a headship advertised but you don't want to work full time say to them i could do three days a week or four days a week because there may well be somebody in the school already who might be able to step up and do that other bit as well mm-hmm. and especially if that's um another model that's working really well in co-headship is where a head wants to take um, retirement but wants to just reduce the number of days and that's a fantastic model for, for co-headship because you've got the experienced head teacher and then the new head teacher and then it's almost like yeah you've got that model where you've got that shared expertise and shared wisdom and you've still got that succession planning coming through so shared headship, headship networks the place to go for information but I would always say always ask just ask what I love, Emma, is you've just opened so many people's minds there to different ways of doing things. And I just think that's... Including so my own. <laughs> yeah, because it, it is one of those professions where you're so right. You, you base your kind of understanding of progression, whether you're a man or a woman, just on what you've seen, you know, in your career and your experience. So to yeah. hear you just pulling out a few different options and ways of doing things is really exciting. And often in leadership, it's seen as very linear. And I think it's so, it could be so much more exciting than that. And I think we can lose mm. so many great people from the profession because it looks like there's one single route and it either fits or it doesn't. And that's not right. Yeah. In fact, you just made me think I should have put another chapter in that book about why, you know, and to, why, why, yeah. why. Yeah, and, and actually, that's one of the questions that if you're going to have a dynamic and developing workforce, you need to keep asking why. Why are we doing it like this? Why have we always done it like this? Why yeah. can't we do it differently? Why can't it be like this? Is to constantly ask those why questions about why do we always just have to do it like this? It's not necessarily the most effective way to do it. Um, and I think that the more people who are brave enough to say, why can't I do mm. this? Or, you know, what's another way we could do, we could look at this or structure this, the more there'll be this kind of natural maturation of the system. But if, if we all kind of fit into this rigid structure that we've had forever, it's never going to change. So you've just got to be brave mm. and go, oh, go on then, let's have a look. <laughs> Emma, I could not think of a more perfect kind of ending for this podcast. I think you've just left people with a really positive message. So I just want to say thank you because I've loved every minute listening to you and talking to you. I don't know about you, Steve. (laughs) I've adored it. I'm I'm just listening, soaking it all up. It's been, no, honestly, it's been brilliant. I've absolutely loved it. And for for me, naturally, the next step is is brought a... a few sparks going off in the old brain up here. So yes. thank you. Yeah. And I'll tell you, Emma, that is not easy with Steve. Yeah. Normally he needs a, like, a, like a little picture book. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. sorry. Oh okay. I Back jest. to Gruffalo. Yeah. I jest. Well, great to talk to you. And thank you mm. for being awesome and inspiring and just yourself. And I think there'll be a lot of people yes. that will listen to the things you've talked about and be very uplifted by that. So thank you. Yeah awesome yeah loved every minute thank you so much thank you chaps it was lovely (laughs) well enjoy the rest of your weekend and uh guys thank you for tuning to don't shoot the deputies once again and please do get in touch and let us know what you thought of this podcast and uh we'll do lots of tweeting and facebooking about this good night all goodbye bye don't shoot the deputies